Hey, just so you know, The Sprawl is supported by curious Calgarians who want to know more about their city and how it works. If that sounds like you, please become a Sprawl member today so we can do more of this kind of in-depth journalism. You can sign up at sprawlcalgary.com. The next stop, Sprawlcast. You're listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Klossus and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. And Sprawlcast is an urban affairs show for curious Calgarians who want more than the daily news grind. This show is made in collaboration with CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, and we are broadcasting slash podcasting from Treaty 7 territory. On Sprawlcast, we go deep to bring you stories you won't find anywhere else. Stories like this one. It started as mostly 1950 bungalows. Now there's more infills and stuff like that. We have collected over 100 signatures on petition from the immediate community who are in opposition um, to the proposed increased density developments. If you call somebody in NIMBY, you shut down conversation right away. You know, you're telling somebody your concerns are valid. I think it's really important that this neighborhood have some diversity of housing choice so that we can have diversity among our residents. Imagine if your neighborhood had its own C-train station. No, hold that thought. Imagine that your neighborhood had two C-train stations. Instead of having to drive downtown or to Sate or to Chinook Center or places like that, you could just hop on the train and go. For a lot of us, that's hard to imagine. The C-train just doesn't go where we live. But in this episode of Sprawlcast... We're going to take a trip to a northwest Calgary community that is unusual in its access to light rail transit. A place that does have two C-train stations. And as such, it's long been viewed as an ideal place for transit-oriented development. Something that City Hall has been talking about for decades, but has struggled to actually make happen. This is a story about one neighborhood's struggle over multifamily housing. It's a story about how communities change and the acrimony that sometimes comes with that. And this story raises a number of interesting questions. Who speaks for a community? Should planning ideals from the 1950s hold sway decades later? And how does a neighborhood right along the C-train line grapple with the pressures of a growing city? at a time when City Hall is trying to stop sprawling and shift growth inward into communities just like this one. Let's dig into it. The next stop is Banff Trail Station. Banff Trail is a neighborhood that is right in the thick of things. When it was built in the early 1950s as a new subdivision of single-family bungalows, it was pretty well the edge of the city. The suburbs. But today, it's tucked into a busy corner northeast of 16th Avenue and Crowchild Trail. It's just east of the University of Calgary, which didn't exist when Banff Trail was built. It's also close to Sate, Foothills Hospital, Motel Village, and McMahon Stadium. Now, as you might expect in a neighborhood with two C-train stations... People here drive less than the average Calgarian does. 
In 2016, about one in four people in Banff Trail took public transit to work, compared to just 16% of Calgarians citywide. The City of Calgary has demographic profiles for each community in the city, using census data from 2016, which is getting rather dated at this point. The city expects to have new profiles with 2021 data next year, but for now we have the 2016 numbers. And the data for Banff Trail gives a good rough sketch of the community. Here's a glimpse at the demographics. In 2016, three out of every four Banff Trail residents was white. The median household income was $79,000, which is less than the median citywide income of 97000 But what really makes Banff Trail distinct is the high number of renters who live there, which makes sense given its location close to post-secondary schools and transit. In Calgary as a whole, about 30% of households were renting in 2016. Banff Trail was almost double that. Some of these residents live in these aging bungalows that were built in the 1950s. Residents like Ryan Morrill. Both Morrill and his wife are doing their PhDs across Crowchild Trail at the U of C. I did like my undergrad and master's. I lived like in um, a neighboring city to where I did university. And that was very long transit. So it was like half an like it was, it was about like an hour transit every day. And so when I moved here to do the my PhD, I was like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that again. Like, no matter where I live, it's going to be within walking distance. And some renters live in newer multifamily housing, like rental townhouses that are starting to pop up in the neighborhood. Well, we really had to move. We had an emergency at our old place, and it was close to the UFC. Um, and a townhouse is great because we have a dog, so it's really good to, easy to walk him through the neighborhood. That was Leah, who just moved into the neighborhood. I also spoke with Rachel Wellwood, another newcomer to Banff Trail, who also lives in one of these new townhouses. I needed to find a new place to live. Rentals were, this is a rental building. Um, Rentals were really difficult, and so I took this place, one of the first places I could find. (laughs) And how would you describe, I know you've only been here a month and a half, but how would you describe kind of the community feel so far? Yeah, um, it's really good. Yeah, people are friendly. Um, I would guess that maybe some people are happy to see new people in the neighborhood and some people maybe not because <laughs> it adds one, one new building, adds, you know, eight more cars and eight or more, more people. So um, probably some mixed, mixed responses. <laughs> And when you moved in, like, were, are you conscious of, like, oh, some people like these higher-density uh, units and some don't? Like, is that something you are conscious of? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, you can kind of tell when people want to reach out to you and say hello and, you know, how's it going being new in the neighborhood and other people kind of, you know, turn and walk away or <laughs> that sort of thing. Row houses like the ones Leah and Rachel live in are an example of what's called missing middle housing. The city has a zoning designation specifically for grade-oriented row houses. It's called RCG, and Banff Trail and the neighborhood to the east, Capitol Hill, 
account for 25% of all RCG zoning in the city. So there's a lot of this kind of housing being built in this part of the city right now. Speaking of Capitol Hill, when Banff Trail was originally built in the 1950s, it wasn't called Banff Trail. At the time, it was an extension of Capitol Hill. The street that runs along the train line in Banff Trail is still called Capitol Hill Crescent. And that's where Pat Boyd moved into a bungalow in 1998. We came here because of the station. It was easy commute for me to go downtown and work and stuff like that. Also my wife, she worked downtown at the time too. And you're literally right across the street from the Banff Trail C train station here. Literally, yes. Like I'd say 50 feet at the best. When I originally moved in, it was just to live. And then we bought the, uh, the house on the corner lot. And then I started to get dreams thinking, well, you know, being across from the LRT, it seemed to me that it would be a natural, given how I enjoyed the area, that it could be like an apartment or, or something that would, you know, I could make some money, of course. And, uh, you know, it would suit the needs of, you know, just so, so naturally across from the LRT, it just made sense to me back even then. This would have been a six-story apartment, and Boyd went ahead and hired a developer for the project. This was about five years ago. It would have been like a 70-sweeter with 70 parking stalls, you know, you know, two or three floors of parking underneath. And, uh, yeah, it would have been 70 more homes, bigger tax base for the city, 70 more families or couples or people or whatever, and, and parking, right? Boyd thought he was on to something. This was the kind of housing that City Hall had been talking about for years. And they have pretty well say they'd like to see mid-rise apartments here in front of the LRT station. And since then, you know, we've taken a crack at it, but the restrictive covenant stopped us dead in the water. The restrictive covenant. This was a new term to me. I hadn't heard of this before working on this story, or if I had heard it, it didn't register. But the people of Banff Trail have certainly become familiar with restrictive covenants over the past few years. A restrictive covenant is a caveat that's registered on a property that stipulates a use that must or must not happen on that land. Restrictive covenants could be you know, anything from you can't duplicate fencing or take your fencing down all the way to um, you're, you know, you're not allowed to put more than one garage or one home on your parcel. This is Teresa Goldstein. She's an urban planner and a sessional instructor in the UFC's planning department. And Goldstein previously worked as the manager of community planning for the city of Calgary. As an example, uh, early in my career, I worked for the town of Okotoks, and there was a lot of developer-installed fencing that went in, and the town of Okotoks uh, wanted to ensure that the fencing was maintained, so they they registered a restrictive covenant on those lands that were created as part of that subdivision that said that the owners were not allowed to remove the fencing or to duplicate the fencing, as an example. So it's like a tool that the city can use in in a variety of ways 
way back before we had, um, you know, the, the land use bylaws of today, there were many restrictive covenants that were added to parcels that worked very similar to a land use bylaw. When the city of Calgary developed Banff Trail in the 50s, City Hall put a caveat on this subdivision that said only single or two-family dwellings could be built on these properties. This caveat covers most of the south half of Banff Trail, nearly 400 homes south of 24th Avenue. Banff Trail isn't unique in this respect. There are restrictive covenants on properties in other established neighborhoods in Calgary too, places like Britannia, Mayfair, and Elbow Park. To further complicate matters, the caveats come from different sources, not just the city. There are properties in Mount Royal, for example, that have restrictive covenants from the Canadian Pacific Railway. Here's the other thing to keep in mind. Restrictive covenants can lose their power over time if they're not enforced. And enforcement isn't done publicly through City Hall public hearings or the Subdivision and Development Appeal Board or any of the other usual channels that residents can use to give input on redevelopment. It's done through lawsuits in the court system. Elliot Treder is an urban geographer at the University of Calgary. So when you have a, a case like that, right, courts would, would, would end up being the decider. And of course, that creates all kinds of other issues about money and who has the power to enforce and et cetera uh, around them. And so you, it tends to be that they continue to remain enforced only under certain kinds of conditions in certain areas as a consequence, because the enforcement of them is has to go to those people with resources. So you might you have very you have very uneven un, uneven geographies of their enforcement as a consequence of that. There are people in different Calgary neighborhoods organizing with each other specifically around the issue of restrictive covenants. Some communities like Britannia have a legal fund for them. Elbow Park has had a development subcommittee to work on this issue and to organize with other community associations in the city to raise awareness and enforce restrictive covenants. The idea of these efforts is to preserve the quote-unquote character of these areas of the city, and to stave off unwanted densification. Elliot Treder has researched the history of restrictive covenants in the early 20th century. And so the idea was that like these parts of the city which are newly developed have a, a whole set of rules which will limit or preserve the character or the full the urban form for for many 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 you won't for many years you won't have to worry about what's called like adverse use or uh, a, a adverse change and so you know people especially like you hear it all the time like preservation of neighborhood character preservation of neighborhood you know type whatever. Um, that was already there. It was very much present 100, 150 years ago. Here's where things get interesting. The Banff Trail Restrictive Covenant and others like it limit development to single-family homes or duplexes. But city planning policy has obviously changed significantly since the 50s. And the two are fundamentally at odds. That in itself is where I would say the 
the challenge in these like existing things lies is like, what's the lifespan of it. And as the city evolves, like should, should that mechanism evolve? Well, probably, but it doesn't because it's, it's a static, uh, you know, a static uh, document at the time that it's been, been registered. The situation in Banff Trail is especially bizarre because the city itself placed the caveat. The irony isn't lost on Pat Boyd. The project he had in mind didn't go anywhere because of the restrictive covenant. Here we are, we're surrounded by some of the biggest employers and and people talk about commutes and, you know, climate emergencies and all that. And uh, we still have difficulty with this private property right that uh, the city imposed on itself. In Banff Trail, this came to a head in 2019 over some proposed redevelopments along and near 24th Avenue Northwest. Picture this street in your mind after running eastward along the south end of the UFC campus and crossing Crowchild Trail. It bisects Banff Trail and goes through Capitol Hill until it hits Confederation Park at 14th Street Northwest. It's a pretty busy route between Crowchild and 14th, one that I actually take to record this podcast at CGSW. The road recently got new raised bike lanes on both sides of the street, which makes it a little easier to ride a bike there. And there's been a lot of contention about multifamily housing being built on and near this street. We have a real opportunity by looking at this as a mini main street. That's former area councillor Drew Farrell speaking at a 2019 public hearing. At issue was a corner lot on 24th Ave. The property was zoned for single family or a duplex. And now a developer, Flosa Homes, wanted to rezone it for six-story multifamily housing. My name is Aidan Kucher. I'm here on behalf of Flosa Homes. Although there are inevitably some residents in the community that would like to maintain the status quo and not see this type of change, the reality is that the city is constantly changing and evolving. Through the hard work of the administration, the community association, and many of the area residents, this property and other surrounding parts of the community have been identified as prime locations for densification. And this issue of restrictive covenants came into early focus at this meeting. It was front and center because a few weeks earlier, a group of Banff Trail residents had taken legal action against developers to stop this project and others like it. They sought an injunction that would block multifamily housing on these sites. And the basis of their lawsuit was the restrictive covenant that the city had placed on Banff Trail in 1952. Now, the Banff Trail Area Redevelopment Plan says that whenever a restrictive covenant is at odds with the goals of the plan, City Hall supports the plan. It takes priority. And one key element of the Banff Trail Redevelopment Plan is intensifying density at certain spots, particularly near transit stations and corridors like 24th Avenue. So you have these two processes happening at the same time modern city planning, and the caveat that's still on title. Here's how city solicitor Denise Jackal explained it at that meeting in 2019. 
The land use planning uh, regime is established by the Municipal Government Act and runs, if you like, in parallel to those common law rights. Council is, is, isn't doing anything wrong or contrary to the law when they um, consider and, and uh, assign land uses to any given parcel that is in contravention of that restrictive covenant. They're really two different things. The fight over restrictive covenants in Banff Trail has been led by Wayne Howes and Laura Sharp, a couple that moved into a newer duplex in the neighborhood in early 2019. Sharp is a ceramic artist and Howes is an engineer, and their home is one of the many new developments that are replacing those old bungalows in the neighborhood. It's just a short walk from their place to the Banff Trail C-Train station. But a developer planned on building a row house on the corner lot next door, and Sharp and Howes were fighting this, arguing that the new housing would affect the enjoyment, use, and value of their property. They also argued that it would change the character of the neighborhood. When they took their case before the Subdivision and Development Appeal Board in 2019, the board noted that before Howes and Sharp had purchased their home, they had already known about the zoning that permitted row housing next door. Sharp and Howes weren't just fighting the development next door, however. They led the effort to sue developers to get that injunction. And at that 2019 council meeting, Sharp and Howes spoke out against that six-story project planned for 24th Ave. We have collected over 100 signatures on petition from the immediate community who are in opposition um, to the proposed increased density developments. Now, Housen Sharp didn't respond to interview requests for this story, but at that meeting, Sharp brought up the issue of the restrictive covenant on their property. One of the primary uh, concerns for uh, the proposed uh, change of land use is um, the document on title to it, Restrictive Covenant Number 1358GL on title. Um, I am a landowner who shares in this legal document, and I would like it noted that I will not be waiving my legal rights in regards to this caveat. Howes and Sharp were hoping to stop development on two fronts, at City Hall and through the courts. In court, they argued that multifamily housing violates the restrictive covenant, and at City Hall, they warned council to be mindful of the lawsuit. The city's continued action in this matter, should they rezone in contravention to caveat 1358GL, would also appear to be proceeding in a way attempting to circumvent the civil legal process, which might appear to be inducement to breach of contract. At the time, the local community association's planning and development committee was supportive of the land use change for multifamily housing at the site in question, especially, quote, given its proximity to two LRT stations and the University of Calgary, end quote. Restrictive covenants weren't a big issue at the time, but that would soon change. In 2020, Another batch of land use applications went before Council for projects along 24th Ave. These were for mixed-use developments between four and six stories high. And at this meeting, a number of Banff Trail residents spoke out against the rezonings. You could hear a deep distrust of developers' plans, 
and of City Hall for continually amending the local area redevelopment plan to allow for taller building heights. There are many residents who are not happy with all the continued land use amendments. I love the feel of Banff Trail right now with the single housing. What I see with these developments is we're getting ad hoc stuff that is just being plopped into the community. I moved to this community because A, there was a restrictive covenant on my property and I thought I was safe um, from major developments. We all understand that development will happen. It is a part of life. Every single, you know, I lived in an infill and now I live in a duplex. Every single person in this room is, has benefited from development in their neighborhoods because we all live in an, an apartment or a house that at one point wasn't there, right? So we do understand that it is necessary. What we are very concerned about is the process and the lack of engagement with the community. Drew Farrell and then Mayor Nahed Nenshi were both in favor of the rezonings, as was the majority of council. So we have one of the lowest density communities adjacent to, to uh, an LRT and right next to one of the largest employment centres in, in the city. What is before us is an opportunity to meet our own policy objectives, which is transit-oriented development. Nenshi talked about City Hall's goal of shifting half of all new growth into established neighbourhoods over the next half century. Because I start to think about our municipal development plan goals and I start to think about the fact that we need to build density in existing neighbourhoods in order to meet those goals. And frankly, if you can't do it here in a place where the ARP allows for it, where are you going to do it? If you can't do it next to two train stations and a university on a street where the ARP allows for it, where you're actually spending money making the street better for this kind of development, where are you going to do it? And so as much as I understand the concerns of some members of the community about this, uh, I also understand that the city is changing, the community is changing, the university is changing. The Banff Trail Community Association was also changing after a rancorous AGM. Gone was the planning committee that had supported densification. And Wayne Howes and Laura Sharp were now on the board. Howes now led the planning and development committee. We've met with hundreds of people. And we believe that the former comments, that the, that the previous planning and development committee was probably offering comments that were uh, interesting, but I think they were representative of the planning and development committee and not of the community as a whole. As well-meaning as the previous P&D committee was, um, it's been, was, was, it was consistently reported to us that their level of engagement was fairly passive. This change on the board and the planning committee meant a shift in how the community association was approaching this issue of redevelopment. Leading up to this has been a, a very divisive process. We had a community association board that was very much in favour of this change. They were very much in favour of the, the area redevelopment plan work and in favour of transit-oriented development then we saw a change of guard. And the current board, some of them, it sounds like, they support the, the, the lower threshold out identified in the area redevelopment plan. We also have a significant component of the community that truly do not want to see development in the neighbourhood, except for singles. Shauna Curry lived in the neighbourhood at the time and watched this unfold. 
the small minority, they're not afraid to yell, but when it comes time to sit down and have a discussion, they're totally unwilling to have a meaningful conversation. And I think that's what we're seeing in Back Trail is that, you know, this, this very small voice is not representing the community. We're preventing young families from moving in the community. You, you know, we joke that you need to be a cardiologist to be able to move into Banff Trail. And, you know, there's many students and young families that work at Foothills Hospital or, or some of the surrounding uh, University of Calgary campuses that can't afford to live in Banff Trail. And, and we're preventing that evolution of, you know, different types of units, different types of um, price points for people to be able to move into the community. And, and so those covenants are really stagnating the community. We're going to continue with the story of what happened with this lawsuit. But first, we're going to hear from the previous leader of the Planning and Development Committee, Catherine Davies. I began our conversation by asking her how long she's lived in Banff Trail and how she'd describe the neighbourhood. So we've been here for 11 years, I guess. And it's, uh, it's a great neighborhood. Um, it's maybe not the most glamorous neighborhood in the city, but I think it's one of the most amenity rich. So we've got access to employment nodes, access to great schools from kindergarten all the way up through post-secondary. Uh, we have great friends in the neighborhood. We have great cycle and walking access to a lot of different things. Um, North Hill Mall, again, not so glamorous, but it's a very functional place to be proximate to. And of course... Edelweiss. And of course Edelweiss. I don't know, North Hill Mall has its charms. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you need a very specific board game and there it is. Or or a sword. For some reason I think of the sword play. I've I've not got a sword there, but if I wanted one I'd go to North Hill Mall. (laughs) That could, you could achieve that goal today. So this is an interesting neighborhood because it has, you know, you live in a bungalow here and this is historically what's been here. Uh, but this neighborhood is undergoing change, as all, you know, all of our established neighborhoods are. And and this is kind of a broad question, but how has that unfolded here? How have you seen that unfold here in the time that you've been here? So in the time that I've been here, there's been a lot of infill development. So bungalows being converted to duplexes. And I suspect that when that started, there was probably a bit of grumbling. But for the most part, people just sort of accept that as normal. A lot of the bungalows are in really, really rough shape. So a lot of, it's not like a lot of tears are shed when they're torn down. And a lot of the infills that they put up are nice. So within the past decade, um, the city did an ARP in the area and it was tied to the area, to, to the ARP, sorry, that's an area redevelopment plan for Motel Village. So they did one for Motel Village. I'm not sure if you've cycled through there lately. It's not. Uh, It's not a prime destination by any stretch of the imagination, Um, but it is considered uh, part of this neighborhood to some degree, and so they did an ARP here. Um, So I was involved in the planning and development committee uh, through that, and I I was on the ARP committee. There was a consultation committee within the neighborhood, and um, I was actually surprised at how generally supportive people were of the changes. Now, some of that came from landlords. You know, there are landlords who've owned a number of properties in the neighborhood for a lot of years and I think they saw the dollar signs associated with that but I think a lot of people are are actually you know enthusiastic about the change and renewal that can come from the neighborhood and then I think a lot of people look at the opportunities in the neighborhood when you have 
just more people and more housing. So you can get a broader demographic of people, you can get you know, proper student housing, rather than having students, you know, eight students living in these, uh, these converted bungalows. And so I think a lot of people saw a lot of opportunity for here. I mean, me personally, I was thrilled to see these changes coming. And I think it's, it's good for the vibrancy of the neighborhood. It's, I'm always excited to welcome new neighbors. Um, obviously there is opposition, like there's always a status quo bias. And I think some people particularly those who've lived here for a long time, are wary of change and, you know, the neighborhood's fine the way it is. Why, why should we be allowing um, this, these high-density forms of housing to, you know, erode the character, the fabric of the neighborhood? But, so it's, it's, it's always a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. And, and how has that played out here? Because uh, that's a tricky thing for communities to navigate, you know, where you have people coming from different uh, viewpoints, different, different opinions on development? Um, <clears throat> so uh, I was involved in the community association until about 2018 or 2019. I'd have to look up the actual date. But um, around that time, you said that you were on 24th today. So some um, multifamily, like, four or five, maybe up to six story developments have been proposed. And so that rose, that raised some eyebrows of people in the neighborhood. There's a bit of consternation about that. Um, And I think that some people have some really legitimate concerns about that and some people don't. And what came out of the woodwork uh, when these were announced was um, this restrictive covenant that is on nearly all the properties in the neighborhood, uh, on the south end of Bamp Trail, south half. Um, And it had not come up during the ARP process. It hadn't come up at any point in any of these consultations around, uh, you know, changing the the zoning of the neighborhood. So it was was a big surprise. But a couple of people in the neighborhood uh, got wind of this tool. And it's a tool that basically they were able to wield to maybe not stop development, but certainly delay it by several years. So um, they, uh, they... pounded the pavement, they rounded up a lot of people and um, had a pretty strong um, marketing effort, I guess, to get people to rally behind this covenant to try and keep the neighborhood the way it is. As you've seen this unfold, um, have you seen people change their minds, like people who are initially kind of wary or who are uh, skeptical uh, of new developments going in? Um, have you seen anybody shift positions or is it kind of, do people stay where they are? No, I think people do. And I think when you, when you make a case for this kind of development, uh, and when you address people's concerns, when you address their fears, a lot of people come to see it, you know, maybe it's not necessarily something that they want, but maybe not something to fear. Um, and I think, so one of the issues that I have with this restrictive covenant and restrictive zoning in general is that, um, you know, restrictive covenants were used for a long time for the explicit purposes of racial segregation. And we don't, like, that's not really a factor at all, I think, in this conversation here, but it certainly is a very effective tool for economic segregation. So if the covenant is allowed to stand, you have a neighborhood of decaying bungalows that are replaced by very expensive infills and as that happens it becomes a neighborhood where people you know 
unless you are in a certain income bracket, you just can't afford to live. Um, and my particular issue with that in this neighborhood is that it's such a strategically valuable area of the city. So this is a neighborhood where you can live without a car. Like this is a neighborhood where you can you can go to school, you can send your kids to school, you can work at the hospital, you can, you know, 16 minutes for me to bike to downtown, the post-secondary institutions are so close, and I just don't feel like this area of the city should be an exclusive neighborhood. You shouldn't, everyone should be able to live here. I think it's really important that this neighborhood have some diversity of housing choice so that we can have diversity among our residents. In our conversation, Davies recalled recently taking a course on the psychology of prejudice and bias. And I wrote a paper on anti-renter bias because we've got a lot of renters, especially in this little corner of the neighborhood, and we've had such excellent neighbors, and I get a little bit irritated when people start going on about renters. But anyway, um, I came across a book written by an academic called, I think, Brian McCabe, and he he talked about the paradox that one, like one of the most effective ways of bringing a community together is when they unite to keep other people out. So, and I, I feel like I saw this in our neighborhood, like a lot of people were really motiva motivated, galvanized by the idea of maintaining this covenant so that we could keep out the wrong kind of development. And I don't think it was ever said out loud you know, to keep out the wrong people, but that's often the intentional or unintentional implication of this kind of um, city building. I also asked Davies about the previous Planning and Development Committee and to respond to House's comment that it didn't represent the community. So I think we had a different interpretation of what a community association planning and development committee should be. And if you look at the terms of reference of many community associations or the guidance from the FCC, the Federation of Calgary Communities, um, planning and development committees are designed to be like arm's length arm's length reviewers with a certain level of expertise, a certain familiarity with city policy and planning processes. And they are actually not designed to represent individuals' agendas. So I remember um, they approached us and they were like, why aren't you fighting for our position? And I was like, well, that's not really the role of this committee. And we had reviewed it like the proposals against the ARP and against the, you know, the letter and the spirit of the, the policies and the, the bylaws and deemed it to be aligned with that. And so I would say that uh, you'll never get a planning and development committee that will be representative of everyone in the community. And you'll, 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 never, you'll never be able to achieve that kind of consensus. So we were very careful to be arm's length and to not let, uh, to not be driven by anyone's personal agenda. I just want to complicate the narrative a bit here, because both sides of this conflict make the point that Banff Trail is distinct, in part, because so many people who live there are renters. In December of 2021, Laura Sharp started a GoFundMe campaign to cover legal fees for the restrictive covenant fight. And on that page, she makes the point that Banff Trail is home to a lot of renters, people who live in affordable accommodation by the C-Train and the U of C. And it's also worth pointing out that some of those renters do find their homes threatened by redevelopment, when an affordable basement suite is knocked down to make way for new townhouses or apartments, a person can't necessarily hop 
from one to the other. When I spoke with Ryan Morrill, who lives in one of the old bungalows, he mentioned the issue of rising rents. My old place that was also like very nearby here, um, what we were paying was like, like significantly, it was, it was like very reasonable. And then when we moved out, he like, I think he almost like doubled the price. And like, it was, it was insane. Like, I don't, I think if like we, if we moved out and then tried to come back, like, I don't know if we would because it'd be too expensive. But Morel was also welcoming of more housing density in Banff Trail. I think it's, I think it's good. I mean, like, I think there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of like people who want to go to the university or people who want to use the train. And I think it's good if there's like more places for people to live that is convenient. Because I know like, you know, prices are really going up and having more availability should like hopefully make them more reasonable. Laura Sharp's GoFundMe campaign is to cover legal fees for this lawsuit over restrictive covenants. Sharp writes that, quote, The judgment that will be rendered in this matter will set a precedent that will affect development rules in every community in Alberta and beyond. If the rezoning passed by city council is allowed to prevail, it will create a playbook that will be used time and time again everywhere to trump individual property and contract rights. And then she writes in all caps, Please join our fight to ensure we have the resources to stop City Hall from taking away our rights and lining the pockets of a few large and influential developers. End quote. That was posted in December 2021. So far, $6,000 has been raised through this GoFundMe campaign. The goal is 50000 Now, earlier that year, some of the folks who were involved in the fight over restrictive covenants in Banff Trail were also organizing to oppose the Guidebook for Great Communities, which was basically a game plan for redevelopment in the city. Wayne Howe says the neighbors in Banff Trail are getting bigger and closer. This is a CTV news story from March 2021. He says more and more large multi-unit buildings are going up, dwarfing the homes beside them, whose owners often didn't know this could happen. There's four backyards abutting one yard space on this side. So um, there's a sense in which the neighbours are right there all the time. Most people would consider that it's, it's stable. What you see is what you're going to see for, you know, pretty much, you know, the future. Howes is one of several community leaders who say the city's new guidebook for planning and development is ignoring the concerns many people have, who say it's too broad and opens the door to potentially too much development in older neighborhoods. By now, there was a tangle of lawsuits and countersuits in Banff Trail involving residents, developers, and the city of Calgary. Howes, Sharp, and some other residents were seeking enforcement of the restrictive covenants. Developers were seeking the discharge of these covenants on the sites they wanted to build on. In the summer of 2021, some of these properties in Banff Trail that had already been rezoned for multifamily housing returned to council for yet another rezoning. This included the property next door to Sharp and House. This re-rezoning, let's call it, put a new density minimum on the properties in question so that a new single-family home or duplex could not be built there. It would have to be multifamily housing. 
this was meant as a way to address the restrictive covenant and basically provide more certainty for developers in light of the pending court case. And at this 2021 council meeting, Sharp and Howes reiterated their position. I am the neighbor directly to the north of this property and am impacted by the decisions you make today. For a number of reasons, I'm asking you to vote against the application to change land use. As you are aware, there is active litigation between groups of landowners, including the applicants, regarding a restricted covenant registered against the land subject to these applications and several hundred others in the area. Howes argued that applicants didn't need rezoning to proceed. Rather, what they require is a discharge of the covenant from title. That determination is the exclusive jurisdiction of the Provincial Court of Alberta, not the City of Calgary. If council members decide to go above the limits of their municipal authority, they can become liable for torturous actions to private citizens that are harmed by their inappropriate reach. Fast forward to the summer of 2022. By now, enthusiasm for this fight in the community had waned. People who were initially on board were bailing as they got worn down by the acrimony of the situation and the possibility of mounting legal costs. And in August, three years after Wayne Howes filed the initial lawsuit, Court of King's Bench Justice David LeBrenz made a decision on the various Banff Trail lawsuits. Justice LeBrenz noted that the core issues were about substantially different visions for the future of Banff Trail, One group of litigants, he wrote, desires to maintain the status quo, a neighborhood comprised primarily of single-family detached homes. Another group of advocates seeks strategic densification of the existing housing. Lebrenz was to decide on whether the restrictive covenant should be enforced or discharged. In his decision, Lebrenz said the city did not exceed its jurisdiction by rezoning the parcels in question. He ruled that the rezoning bylaws passed by council were lawfully enacted and valid. Howes and Sharp had argued that the city's goal of more density could be met elsewhere. But Lebrenz said that if someone is applying for discharge of the restrictive covenant, it's not necessary for them to prove that the development in question can't be done in any other location. In my view, Justice LeBrenz wrote, imposing such a precondition would effectively grant residents of neighborhoods with restrictive covenants an effective veto power over development. He continued, This would create an artificial distinction between development in areas with a decades-old restrictive covenant and those communities that were planned without the use of a restrictive covenant. In the end, LeBrenz ordered the discharge of the restrictive covenant on the lands in question, saying it's in the public interest. Sharp and Howes are currently appealing Justice LeBrenz's decision, which means these multifamily housing projects are still in limbo. If you go down 24th Ave, you can see some of the fenced-off lots in question. Meanwhile, people in the community are still walking away from this court battle. The current community association president, for example, was involved earlier on, but is not part of the appeal. There's a lot riding on this case. People who are hoping to use restrictive covenants to block redevelopment in other neighborhoods are watching closely. 
If Justice Lebrenz's decision is upheld, there's talk of lobbying the Alberta government to change the provincial laws that govern restrictive covenants. Meanwhile, some residents of Chinook Park, Calvin Grove, and Eagle Ridge are organizing as we speak. They want to create a new restrictive covenant as a way to stave off multifamily housing in those southwest neighborhoods. Restrictive covenants are powerful legal instruments that trump land use bylaws, says a flyer being distributed around the neighborhood. Justice Lebrenz's decision would suggest otherwise, but in any case, organizers are hoping to get 90% of households in the area to agree to this and to put up an initial $500 each toward the legal costs. So, what's the takeaway from this story? After years of bitter division in the community, there's a readiness to move on past this fight. I got that sense from most everyone I spoke to for this story. There's a new community association board with some of the same faces, but it's more of a balance between the different perspectives at play in the neighborhood. And some residents have changed their positions over the years. Kirsten Plaxton is one of the residents who was initially involved in the lawsuit over restrictive covenants in Banff Trail. So looking back at it now, um, would I do it again? Probably not. Did I think it was the right decision to join back in 2019, I believe? (laughs) It seems like a long time ago. It was. I thought I was doing something good for the community. I had talked to a lot, like, I had made my decision after talking to a lot of people. I've talked to a lot of seniors who, a lot of them didn't quite understand what was going on. And I thought that I was supporting them with what I could do, um, what was my power. And then what I've also learned over the process that um, Calgarians that have restrictive restrictive covenants on their titles often feel that it's the only tool they have to say, hey, you need to take me seriously. This isn't okay. This isn't working. Um, You're not listening to me, so I have to take this step. Is it an effective tool? I don't think it is. I think there's there needs to be there needs to be a better way <laughs> to get city council and city officials to listen to residents. Plaxton says she has a lot of compassion for people who feel unheard and belittled by city hall because she's experienced that herself. Engaging kind of um, puts you in this corner where people look at you like you don't care about your community, you don't care about the city, you only care about yourself. You know, it brings us back to the term of being a NIMBY. Um, um, and really what it did, which I think is really sad, it did put a strain on the community for a long time, where people were either for it or against it. They were upholding it, or they were for letting it go, or, you know, not even the whole community has it on their titles. So. In that sense, um, it's really hard to navigate because whatever you do, whatever your decision is, it shouldn't divide the community. You know, it's kind of come in the way of some friendships that I'm happy are being rekindled now. (laughs) And once once we all started talking again, um, it kind of turned out that we were really not that far apart in how we see this community developing, how we see 
the need for development, the need for, you know, updates to inf infrastructure, making it more walkable, making it great for the kids. I mean, if you go down 20th, there's a lot of row houses here now. Um, they're just fine. They look great. They fit right in. I'm hoping, you know, it'll be great neighbors coming, more trick-or-treating for the kids, right, which is a great thing for them. Plaxton also made an interesting point about how City Hall's processes can put people on the defensive right away, rather than encouraging nuanced conversation. So if you go to a council meeting and development is um, presented, the wording is first you step forward if you're in favor, then you step forward if you're in opposition. So right away you have this language that divides people, puts you in two camps where you shouldn't be, because I was like, well, I don't really, I'm not for and I'm not against. I have some concerns. Where do I go? Do I go here? Do I go there? So to me, let's start with getting away with that and saying, step forward if you would like to make a comment or if you would like to tell us how you feel about this. And then just, you know, take it seriously. I asked the area councillor, Terry Wong, about this. And he emphasized the importance of trust when it comes to densifying established neighborhoods, saying the city could do a better job of communicating with the public to build that trust. And nine times out of ten, I hate to say this, is that either we don't do an effective job or the, the job is so comprehensive, so complex that the public tune out and they, 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 uh, they don't think that their issues are being resolved, but they're, they're being told public policy statements. The second part of the the second part of the equation is the public themselves. They need to understand that things do evolve, things do change, and the the rights of individuals, not just themselves, uh, are are just as important. So, if a neighbor across the street wants to do something, they have to respect that the neighbor has the right to do that. And then, thirdly, industry themselves, the industry needs to, you know, there's a there is always a business motivation to everything they do, whether it be as a profit orientation or building a client base or developing a it's the strength of their industry and everything else. But again, they can't do this in the absence of the, the municipal policies as well as the uh, the city uh, uh, populars and taxpayers. So trust all, all the way around, all three, is, is what's extremely important. I also asked Catherine Davies what her takeaway is from this situation in Banff Trail. I think the biggest takeaway is that our system is just so fundamentally broken. And I think that what you see in Banff Trail, you see throughout the city of Calgary, you see throughout communities in like throughout North America. I mean, you look at a lot of the housing politics happening in California or Minnesota or Washington state, and it's just the same thing over and over again. And um, I, I think we just fundamentally need to rethink uh, how much, uh, what's, what's the term? How much, um, how much control existing residents should have over long-term decisions about housing in their communities. I think we need to examine some of the biases that underline this kind of um, activity. Like, why is it that we're so scared of multifamily housing? We need to talk about why we have this idea that people in single-family homes cannot live anywhere proximate to people in any other form of dwelling. End of line. Thanks for listening and see you again soon.
been listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Klossus, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. And if you value stories like this one, in-depth stories that aren't being done elsewhere in Calgary, please become a Sprawl supporter. You can sign up at sprawlcalgary.com, and most of our members pitch in just 5 or $10 a month. That's what makes it possible for us to dig into these local stories with this much depth. So please, if you're a listener and you appreciate the work, just pitch in a few dollars. This episode was edited by Mike Todd. Our theme music is by Dan Agostino and Kenny Murdoch. Our C-Train narrator is Holly McConnell. Thanks for listening and see you next time.